Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, you're gonna get your weekly dose of criminal injustice and civil rights news as we talk about Kentucky's refusal to charge the officers in the murder of Breonna Taylor. We will also be talking about evidence that has confirmed that police and prosecutorial misconduct contributes to more than half of all exonerations in the American criminal injustice system. And of course, the tragic passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who herself was a civil rights warrior and one of my personal idols. In segment two, as promised last week, we'll be exploring access to medical care provided to those in custody, such as your local county jail and within the state and federal prison systems. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify, and follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at T-L-O-B-J. If there are topics that you want to hear about on a future episode, put those comments in the, put those in the comments down below, and we'll make sure to hit them in a future episode. Look to tlobj.com for more information about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that Kentucky refused to indict the officers who murdered Breonna Taylor? Yeah, I I saw that and I'm I'm fearful for that whole city. There's going to be a lot of protesting, there's going to be a lot more violence. And it's all because justice was not served. Can you tell us a little bit about the grand jury's decision? So neither of the officers who shot Breonna Taylor have been found responsible and, and are responsible for her death have been criminally charged. This was a devastating result for the family and the community who has been protesting consistently and advocating for justice in her death. One officer was charged with wanton endangerment for basically spraying the house with bullets um, during the exchange of gunfire. Those shots went into the apartments of Breonna Taylor's neighbors, although none of them were injured. This is a slap in the face because it essentially states that Breonna Taylor's murder was justified, forgivable, and according to police procedure. All because the police happened to find one single witness in the apartment complex who claimed that he heard the police announce themselves, where everyone else involved, including the people surrounding Breonna Taylor's apartment and her partner who fired the single shot that triggered the return volley of repeated sprays of fire, testified that the police did not announce themselves. This witness will never be subjected to cross-examination because they were presented to the grand jury and there is no opportunity for an alternative attorney to examine them at that stage. And in my opinion, this is a prosecutorial abdication of the duty and just a a subjugation of themselves and genuflection towards the police department in this case. It's shameful. So, I mean, it is definitely shameful. I mean, it was, it seemed like everything went wrong with that and things that shouldn't have gone wrong. I mean, if people would just slow down a little bit and work with their procedures and make sure that the right professionals are there when there's an emergency 
and the right information, then things like this wouldn't happen. Innocent people wouldn't have to die. So police officers were allegedly shot during the protests and the alleged shooter was immediately apprehended. How do you interpret this situation? It seems like when it's them, they catch their guy right away. Well, exactly, Erica. This is a marked example of the lack of police accountability and the injustice of the system in the Kentucky in particular. We never want to see violence. We don't want to see police officers shot intentionally or for a political purpose. Yet what you see here is police departments, a, a quick response, immediate investigation, and the, sh and, uh, the charging of the shooting, uh, the charging for rather the shooting of one of their own, shows us citizens how important they view their own lives and how worthless they view our lives, particularly black lives. You can bet that those police reports won't be totally void of any information like Breonna Taylor's was. And no doubt they will include every detail, including eye contact in those reports. This is another tragedy compounding a prior tragedy because it shows us again that police will do lawful reports. They will conduct investigations. They will meet their responsibilities when it comes to helping one of their own but will totally abdicate it when it comes to protecting their own who have murdered a citizen. So, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I mean, they're in control, so they're kind of stacking the deck in every situation. They get the best possible result. And, you know, it's disgusting. They're supposed to be there to help the citizens, not themselves at every turn. So it seems like a recall of several times now that we've discussed disappointing grand jury results. What would you say to those who are feeling discouraged with this situation and who are out there just ready for blood? First and foremost, I would encourage people to take care of themselves emotionally. Reach for the universal coping strategies that help carry everyone through dark times, faith, family, friendship, and most importantly, action. Second, do not allow this to defeat and silence this movement. Don't lose hope that we can successfully advocate for change. It was 86 years in the assassination of JFK after the end of the Reconstruction era when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 finally passed Congress. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. As President Barack Obama noted, change takes a long time, but it does happen. Each of those who works for social change is part of the mosaic of all who work for justice. And together, we can accomplish multitudes. Third, we must mobilize to be heard in November. If you want prosecutorial accountability, if you want police reform, if you want to see the beginning of the end of the rampant racism in police and the brutality against the people, then you must exercise the power that you do have and make your voice heard. Do not stand on the sidelines because one candidate is lukewarm in your mind and the other is terrible. Vote for the candidate that supports these positions, even if that candidate may not meet every criteria that you have. 
Now, speaking of police and prosecutorial misconduct, a study released on September 1st found that misconduct by government officials contributed to 54% of false confessions in cases where defendants were later exonerated over the past three decades, with police misconduct in particular being a factor in 35% of these cases. So how was that report created? So this 185-page report was produced by the National Registry of Exonerations. It's a joint project of several law schools and based out of the University of Michigan. <clears throat> Go Bucks. It was examined, um, it examined 2,400 exonerations in the registry dating back to 1989. Now, the official misconduct was grouped into five categories, witness tampering, misconduct in interrogations, fabricating evidence, concealing exculpatory evidence, and misconduct at trial. Now, in addition to the police, prosecutors committed misconduct in 30% of the cases examined, and misconduct by forensic examiners was, was found in 3% of the cases, while child welfare workers were found to have violated their rules and engaged in misconduct in about 2% of the cases. Wow. I mean, it, it seems like they put a lot of work into that report. By chance, did they look at race as a factor? They did. The study found that Black defendants were the most impacted by the official misconduct. Among the cases involving Black exonerees, the rate of misconduct was 57% compared to 52% in white exoneree cases. Now, remember that Black people are a smaller percentage of the overall population. They are disproportionately represented in the prison system. So this figure is even more stark than it looks. And as it relates to the death penalty in particular, 87% of cases against black exonerees involved misconduct, while 68% of white exonerees sentenced to death had, a, had misconduct involved in them. Let this sink in for a moment. 93% of people whether black or white, sentenced to death, were sentenced in part due to misconduct by officials. That is shocking and appalling. Well, no, it is. It's absolutely shocking. Um, do they say why this misconduct was happening? It did. The report concluded that it is a systemic issue. Pervasive practices that permit or reward in many jurisdictions bad behavior, a lack of resources, ineffective leadership by police commanders, crime lab detectors, and I'm sorry, crime lab directors, and chief prosecutors. So a fundamental lack of leadership, allowing those bad apples to churn through the system and remain there and get promoted into leadership, which then allows more bad apples to continue and systemically be a part of the system. I know I sound like a broken record on this point, but here's the science backing up the positions that we've been explaining and discussing for months. It's a systemic issue that needs systemic change on every level of law enforcement, from the lowest mall cop to police to prosecutors on the state and the federal level to see our civil rights finally truly protected and honored by the people with the most power in our communities.
Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm glad that the report came out and that, you know, we're able to analyze it a little bit for the audience because it can be very complicated. I mean, 187 pages and all of those stats, um, you know, really just proving that things need to change within the prison systems. Absolutely. Well, not just the prison system, but across the board in the entire criminal injustice system. Note with sadness, the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, I mean, what a landmark person she was in our justice system. She is just at the root of so many wonderful changes and she will be sorely missed. And one of the amazing things that I think, one of the things that I think is most amazing about Justice Ginsburg was that when she started her law career, she, she was advocating for equality among the sexes. That's, you know, kind of her lodestar, her, her most significant accomplishment in many, um, in many people's eyes. And what I find most interesting about that is that when, when she started that litigation, when she started that, that fight, she more often took on the cases of men being discriminated against than she did those of women because she found that you could educate judges and demonstrate to them that there should be equality among the sexes when you had a male as a client. So she really turned the biases of the courts against themselves in order to create a substantial amount of favorable case law while she was a litigator. Didn't she have some important dissents as well? Well, she did. Uh, her, her decisions started coming out very soon um, after she was appointed to the Supreme Court. Her first major decision, some would say probably her most notable decision of all time was the United States versus Virginia, um, which determined that uh, Virginia Military Institute's male-only admissions policy violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It paved the way for equal access to education for women. I remember studying this case in my constitutional law class um, you know, when I was in law school. This, um, this was a landmark decision that really made discrimination on the basis of sex unlawful in this country. And it's amazing to think that it took until 1996 for discrimination on the basis of sex to become illegal in this country, and then only because of a Supreme Court decision. Um, in 1999, she decided Olmstead versus LC, which uh, applied the Americans with Disability Act to uh, states and prohibited people from um, putting people with mental disabilities in institution settings rather than allowing them to live in the communities with us. Um, and then of course in, in 2009, Safford Unified School District versus Reading, um, which found that the search of a 13 year old girl's backpack in her underwear was uh, an illegal search and violated that young lady's Fourth Amendment rights and gave some, albeit minimal, privacy rights back to students on campus. 
Now, as the court has shifted towards a, a more conservative activist bent, um, she was required to um, advocate from the minority more often than not. And one of her most famous decisions was in, or rather most famous dissents was in, in Bush versus Gore. Um, and that dissent later became the foundation of a variety of both federal and state laws and legal opinions across the country. The loss of this monumental mind will be felt in legal communities and our society for decades to come. And we join the nation in mourning her. We certainly do. And we do not look forward to the nightmare that is upon us where they are trying to very quickly get a replacement before the, well, the elections have already started and they're trying to replace her um, already. And it's a, it's a very sad situation in my opinion. The shift of the court from a balanced body to that of an activist conservative body is going to be the final death now in, in our civil liberties uh, as Americans. Um, the willingness to give up our civil rights in the name of safety from terrorism, from foreigners in general, uh, really has driven the nail into the coffin of honestly us deserving those civil rights at this point. You know, whether, if, if we're not willing to stand up for them for everybody, then nobody deserves them at this point. Absolutely. Some people who need the assistance more than others are those who have been convicted and sentenced to prison or jail. In those situations, there are an overwhelming number of details that have to be handled um, that most people don't really consider, Erica. For example, leases, mortgages, jobs, real estate, businesses, utility bills. All of these services and contracts have to be dealt with in one way or another. And as promised here in segment two, we're gonna talk about a major issue for those who are incarcerated, which is their medical care during incarceration. So let's explore access to medical care in custody. So how does medical care work within a prison? What is supposed to happen is individuals are supposed to receive the medical care that they need. When a person goes into state custody, they become a ward of the state as if they were unable to make their own decisions. The prison or the jail system then has the authority to make their appointments take them to their visitations with physicians and nurses and dispense their medications according to prescription. Most jails and prisons have a medical unit and medical staff, including nurses and physicians and nurse practitioners. Specialists can be contacted and will either be brought into the institution or the inmate can be taken to them to see them for specialist treatment or sophisticated testing like MRIs. Just because the prison is making decisions for the inmate does not mean that they can neglect them. In fact, the prison is obligated or the jail is obligated 
to care for the patient as if they were not a prisoner. But unfortunately, the reality is the administration of these institutions often abuse that, consider the bottom line, the financial bottom line of those institutions as more important than the health and well-being of the person that are in their care, and deny a wide swath of necessary medical treatment to those that are incarcerated. Now, that same medical staff whose eyes are primarily on the bottom line and not on their well-being, decide whether inmates get a cane or a special bed to accommodate their conditions or even a special diet to control and minimize the consequences of diabetes. Wow, Brian, I hadn't thought about that, but of course it makes sense. There's a huge uh, population to consider when you think about prisons and jails. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely, Erica. And with the proliferation and lengthening, lengthening of prison sentences, we have a whole generation of elderly individuals in state and federal penal institutions serving out extensive sentences that serve absolutely no value to society at large. They have long ago become zero threat to society whatsoever, yet we keep them incarcerated and pay their medical costs uh, because of these lengthy sentences. Unfortunately for them, more often than not, their medical care is neglected. So would a person in custody have access to the same medications that they needed outside of the prison or jail? So it really depends on the type of medication that this individual needs. Certainly no inmate will receive prescription narcotics outside of uh, necessary intravenous or surgery, surgical situation. And many other scheduled and controlled substances aren't allowed or are very strictly monitored to ensure there's no bargaining with the pills or exchange of them in the institutions. Again, because you have no control over what's dispensed, you are not guaranteed the appropriate and proper formula of the medications that you need. Now, sometimes acute situations like mental health episodes, like anxiety attacks, post-traumatic stress disorder, and disassociation disorder, can result in jail and prison staff uh, using force to ensure compliance and regain control of individuals in crisis. I'm sure you have seen the images and the videos of Cuyahoga County and Pike County, Ohio, um, police and sheriffs and corrections officers literally beating inmates that are strapped into restraint chairs. You know, and this is a direct result of these people in custody not having access to the proper medication that they were prescribed before they went into jail or prison. Time and time again, what we see are these individuals in crisis and law enforcement, again, reacting with force rather than empathy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it becomes a very complicated and difficult situation when you're not on the proper meds and you're in a much more high anxiety situation than you probably were on the outside of prison and jail. So what happens when they are denied care, when the prisoners are denied care? So you may think that this arrangement could put somebody's life at risk and you would be right about that. 
it can and it will, and it's resulted in death or near-death experiences for hundreds of individuals, thousands of individuals who have been denied medication, given the wrong medication, or given medications on the wrong schedule or formula. We represent right now, Erica, three separate individuals in three separate jurisdictions with three different diagnoses, each of whom were either denied their medication, given the wrong medication, or refused medication that the, the institution knew they needed to be on for life-saving reasons. Now, in my opinion, Erica, there is an Eighth Amendment constitutional protection against cruel and unusual punishment that applies to these sorts of situations. Denying an epileptic, their, their anti-seizure medication, is cruel and unusual punishment. Denying an individual with diabetes their insulin or giving them the wrong insulin is cruel and unusual punishment. But to date, we have not received a decision from the United States Supreme Court finding that medical neglect or abuse is a, an Eighth Amendment violation. Inmates do, however, have some recourse in the form of administrative complaints and processes. But any inmate denied medical care is best served by consulting with an attorney regarding a medical malpractice or abuse case. As well, the family of any inmate who loses their life in custody is entitled to pursue those remedies as well. Now, many inmates may fear retaliation from corrections officers, and if your loved one is in this situation, you may have those concerns as well. I have seen corrections officers retaliate against inmates for filing complaints or even just retaining an attorney to assist them in securing appropriate medical care. There are many ways at the mercy of the character of the staff and the warden of the institution in which they are held, that they can be abused. However, bringing a lawyer into the situation can often help secure medical access and accommodations, as well as assist in a facility transfer or a unit change in order to protect the persons from retaliating corrections officers. Moreover, an attorney can file subpoenas, public records requests, and if necessary, bring a lawsuit against the administration to bring them into compliance with their obligations according to their own policies and the medically accepted standard of care. What's important here, Erica, is that you can't back down. In the face of physical abuse, in the face of mental abuse, in the face of incarceration in the whole, your long-term health care is more important than some short-term suffering. You know, an individual that has seizures, that has epilepsy and is denied their anti-seizure medication can suffer lifelong consequences should they have a seizure. Diabetics, likewise, can suffer like lifelong consequences if they're denied their insulin. So while you may be put in the hole today as retaliation, that in and of itself is also another violation of your civil rights. And an attorney on the outside monitoring that conduct can help reduce the occurrence of that conduct if they are an attorney who's willing to stand up and fight for you. Thanks so much for letting us know what's happening in the prisons, Brian, when it comes to their medical care and the different ways that you can actually protect your loved ones who might be in there. You're absolutely welcome, Erica. And thank you for joining me today. And thank you everyone else for listening to our show today. 
to become more informed about police and prosecutorial misconduct in securing wrongful convictions, wrongful convictions themselves, and the neglect of those individuals who are incarcerated, and everything else you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, check out tlobj.com or find us on social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense at TLOBJ on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and using our hashtags, no walk, no talk, no blow. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights in your criminal injustice system, as well as a discussion of what to do if you are charged with an OVI or a DUI during the pandemic. How do you cope without your license? Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And today I carry on that tradition by telling my friends, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended.